All right, as happens when we go through the Bible in an expository manner, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, we have these great transitions. And a great transition from talking about the light of Christ last week, this week we're going to focus on why the light is needed. We're going to talk about everyone's favorite subject, sin. (laughs) But here's the thing. A lot of Christians shy away from this. A lot of people are uncomfortable talking about sin and death. A lot of people are afraid to tell someone that you are in sin and that you will die in your sins and hell is the place that you deserve because of your sins. You should not be ashamed of this because Jesus wasn't. Jesus mentioned this often. And the fairy tale Jesus that a lot of people like to paint the picture of this always has a lamb around his neck and always says greeting card phrases is going to be challenged this morning. Because Jesus was more focused on sin and death than he was the love of God or the mercy of God. Because you can't understand the love of God or the mercy of God unless you understand your own sin. So we're going to lean into that a little bit this morning. And so I want to talk about sin. And I want us to understand that the light of Christ we talked about last week can only be fully understood, as that quote from Francis Bacon says, it can only be understood in contrast to darkness. I'm going to talk about sin, the root of sin, from the very beginning, the consequences of sin, and then also the solution to sin. So the first thing that Jesus is going to bring up here subtly, and we theologically draw out, is that we are sinners both by nature and by choice. We are sinners by the condition of our humanity, but also our actions. We're going to break that down a little bit throughout the sermon, but I want you to get that. Because a lot of people will try to make the case for themselves that, well, I'm a good person because I've done more good than bad. But what Romans 5 tells us is that your very nature, by the fact that you were born of man and woman and you come from Adam, that you are dead in your sin. So by nature, here's what happened. We know the story of the Garden of Eden and how God created everything perfectly and God designed perfect fellowship between man and woman and him. But then they decided to listen to the sinful ramblings of a serpent instead of God and desire to be like God themselves and say, God, we know better than you and took their sin on themselves. Decided they wanted to know the difference between good and evil. But little did they know that evil would not only infect them and completely deprave them, but the curse that went on them because they rebelled against God touched every bit of God's creation, down to the very dirt. That's why last week when the guys got together and talked about work, work is not supposed to be something that we, we hate or becomes a, a chore. Work was meant to be good, but because of sin, The very ground works against us. And everything that we do with our hands is marked and scarred by sin. And so our nature comes from the fall of Adam all the way back in Genesis 3. But also, our very actions, our choices betray us as well. And this is Romans 2 and 3. That even though the Jews who thought they kept the law, when they judged someone else... They were breaking the law by judging others. And then chapter 3, he lays out the case that no one does good. 
Everyone's choices lead to sin and death. Then the great transition in Romans 3.21 is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So the root of sin began in Adam. The consequence of sin is that sin leads to death. That promise that God gave to them in the garden that if you eat of this, you will surely die is still in place. And everyone will see physical death. But through Christ, there's a solution. Because through Christ, we don't have to see spiritual death. And we speak of spiritual death. Christ mentioned in chapter 5, and John will also mention in Revelation, that there's a first and second death. Everyone will die physically. But some will die spiritually. Most will die spiritually. That means they will carry the weight of their sins, the wrath of God poured out on them for their nature and their choices. And they will die apart from God and be separated from him forever in hell, eternal torment. But God, who is rich in mercy, sent his son as a solution to the problem of sin. And so when we study sin, it's always a contrast. It's light, it's dark, it's God versus man, it's righteousness, wickedness, it's above and below And today we're going to see the one who comes from above and the ones below. Jesus versus the Jews. And Jesus is going to show a lot of contrast when he says, I from above, you are from below. I know my father. You don't know of what you speak. And this entire passage has this undertone of death. Because sins are not just talked about by themselves. Sins are talked about by what they lead to. Sin leads to death. We don't have to look far in scripture to see that. But there is a solution to sin and death. This is why what we believe about Christ is so important. It's why his incarnation, his death, his burial, and his resurrection are all important. Because if we're guilty by our own nature, everyone born of man and woman bears the sin that David talked about earlier. My mother brought me forth in iniquity, Psalm 51. Why did Jesus have to be born of a virgin? So that the sin of Adam would not carry through his father to him. And the sinless man who walked perfectly on this earth had to die. Because if not, we would die in our sins. If the wrath of God and, and the penalty for sin was not carried out, carried out on a perfect sacrifice, we would still bear that. And apart from Christ, you still do bear that. And if he, if he did not rise again, then there would be no new life. So the gospel is so important. And what we believe about the gospel, what we teach about the gospel is so important. Because the gospel is not a chance at a better life. It is your only chance at life. And this is what Jesus is telling them this morning. This is not going to be one of those lighthearted, warm and fuzzy messages. But this is something we, un- we need to understand. Because without a knowledge of sin and death, the gospel has no power. And without the consequences of sin and death, we have no good news. So let's turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8. I'm going to start reading in verse 21. Read through verse 30. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. 
And he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I've heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of my own authority. But I speak just as the father taught me and he who has sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Let's pray. Our Lord, our God, our Father, maker of heaven and earth. How incredible is it that the same Father our Lord spoke to on this earth allows us to call him Father. The same way he was always with the Son and never left him. With our union with the Son, he will always be with us and never leave us. All the glorious riches we have through Christ Jesus. All the bountiful mercy of our God towards sinners. Lord, forgive us when we forget about our own sin and rest in our own righteousness. And Lord, forgive us when we only focus on our own sin and don't rest in your righteousness. Lord, I pray this morning will be a correction for all of us. That we view sin the way you do. And, the way, and we view you the way we should. And that we walk away from here proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord. And there is life in him for the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. I just pray that your spirit would teach us. He would guide me and use this time for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so as always in our sermons, we're going to learn about Jesus this morning and we're going to learn from Jesus. And let's be honest, if you're reading this for the first time or you come across this without context of who Jesus is and what he's talking about, this can sound a little arrogant. It can even sound a little crazy because he's saying some things that are not clear at face value. And so it's important that when we reach difficult parts of Scripture, things that seem unclear, that we give them thoughtful consideration and we also weigh them against what we see in other places in, in Scripture. So beginning in verse 21, so he said to them again, No word in scripture is misplaced. John does not add additional words for uh, his own benefit. He says to them again, if you were here a couple weeks ago, we saw in chapter 7, he says this in verse 33 and 34. I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am going, you cannot come. So Jesus is repeating this again, but he actually takes it one step further. Because now he says, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So let's walk through this. 
This is very definitive. Jesus is not mincing words here. He says, I am going away. This is going to happen. And you will seek me. This is going to happen. And you will die in your sin. This is going to happen. And where I'm going, this is going to happen. This is direct language. So firstly, I'm going away. This is an allusion to death. I'm going away. Because the last time he said he was going away, they thought he was going to go preach to the Greeks. But now when he says he's going away, they assume he's going to kill himself. So they, they know here that the force of his words is referring to death. Then he says that you will seek me. Not seek to believe or to find, not seek the Messiah, but you're, you're going to keep looking for someone to fulfill what you think should happen. We talked about this last week. In the last several weeks, that you can't seek Jesus as a plan B. Unless you seek God with all of your heart, it is going to be in vain. And that's how they can say, you can seek me and not find me. Because their hearts are divided. We cannot have a divided heart. I was reading this week an example of Thomas Paine, who's one of the founding fathers of our country. Prolific writer, He encouraged the the revolutionary troops with a lot of his his writings. And then after uh, the U.S. wins their independence, he begins to share his beliefs about religion. The atheists of today are are champions of Thomas Paine. Because in a a religious Bible-believing culture, he wrote a book called The Age of Reason. And he dedicated it to picking apart every bit of scripture and declaring all these contradictions. So all of these atheists who think they're coming up with new material, he was doing it then. But he also had a great role to play in the Enlightenment in America. Because he gave a voice to all these people who wanted to shake their fists at God. Many, even Thomas Jefferson, not a believer himself, told them, you should not write that book. Because uh, it's not going to go over well. But he wrote it. He was, he was convinced of it. He thought he was going to change the world. Little did he know by the time he was going to die... He had very few friends, and his funeral was, was attended by very few people. What I want to bring to your attention is the words from his deathbed. And some of the last words recorded of him were, he regrets even writing the age of reason. Oh, that the age of reason would never have been written. The God that I defied, the God that I tried to disprove, I am now seeking, and I fear that I will never find him because of what I've done. I'm paraphrasing his words here. But the sentiment is sure that his entire life he shook his fist at God, and on his deathbed, God, could you possibly be real? He sought him, but with a divided heart. And even recognizing that I fear I'm going to face this God who I've spent a career trying to disprove. It's very similar to the Pharisees we find today. They may bear the name of God, but they're not seeking him with a whole heart. It is a religion that benefits them. It is a teaching that exalts their own understanding and their own goodness, which is what Thomas Paine and everyone who followed him, followed after him, rests on. I'm going away. You will seek me. Those who don't seek me with all your heart, you will die in your sin. Look at the wording here. It's intentional. You will die in your sin, singular. This is a sinful condition. This is our sinful nature. You will die in your sin. 
Because Adam sinned, you sin. Because you are from Adam, you are in sin. Your fallen nature, your original sin, if you will, is still resting on you. You will die in your sinful nature. I don't care how righteous you think you are. Because when Adam sinned, we all sinned. This is a concept we call federal headship. That Adam is our representative. That because Adam was the representative for mankind, that when he sinned, we all did. And we bear the guilt with him because we share his DNA. Also important. Why is the incarnation of Christ important? Because we share his DNA. It had to be a human representative, a new federal head. That's all what Romans 5 is about. That sin condition that was attached to Adam can only be replaced when it is atoned for with a new righteous condition attached to Christ. So without Christ, Adam is still your representative. Your fate is just like his. But in Christ, Christ becomes your representative. You will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So where is he going? What's Jesus talking about here? One, because of the sinful condition, they can't share in, in his death. They can't follow him. They have no part to him. So their death is going to be different. Jesus, as a man, experienced the first death. But as the perfectly righteous one, he will not experience the second death. And in Christ, his righteousness imputed to us saves us from the second death. But if you do not seek him with all of your heart, if your heart is divided, if you still reject Christ then you cannot go where he goes. Your death will be different from his. You will die a first death and a second death, both of which you deserve because of your sinful nature. There's so much theological depth in this statement. Because Jesus would die a death to conquer sin and then go to the Father. They would die a death in Adam because of their sin. Wrath poured out by the Father. Where I'm going, you cannot go. They could not follow him into his death because they were not willing to die to sin. So they didn't follow him into his death. They will not follow him into his new life because of their sin. But in Christ, we can follow him into his death, putting sin to death because of his work on the cross. And because of that, we can rise to new life in him. We can go where he goes. We will go to the Father one day because of Christ. You see the line Jesus is drawing here. He is this contrast between me and you. The things from above and the things from below. The things from my Father and the things from your Father. So how do they respond? Of course he tells them, you're going to die in your sin. And they're going to say, wait, what, us, our sin? Me? What do you mean? No, it's not what they say. They said, will he kill himself? Do you see this? He tells them they're going to die in their sin, and it just goes right over their head. They, he's going to kill himself? They couldn't be more wrong. Because suicide is a selfish death. Instead of selfishly taking his own life, he selflessly gives his own life. They could not be more wrong. Instead of selfishly taking his own life, he selflessly gives his own 
life. You would think that this would be troubling to them. That they're going to die in their own sin. And all they can focus on is what Jesus is going to do. So people ask me all the time, why don't people respond to the gospel? I shared Christ with them. Why are people's hearts still hard? This is a mark of someone who will die in their sinful state. Someone who doesn't see themselves as a sinner. They just ignore Jesus' statement about their own sin. They don't recognize their need for a savior. Because they're not bad enough. They've done enough good things. It's where most people find themselves. Well, I don't need a savior because I'm good enough on my own. I've got this. And there's that you and I contrast. Again, where I am going, you cannot come. Because you are sinners and I'm your only hope and you are blind to it. He goes on to say, you are from below, I am from above. You're of this world, I am not of this world. Again, the contrast, you and I, above, below, you're from this world, I'm not from this world. There's a little spoiler alert, we're going to get into this in a couple weeks, but Jesus is going to talk about their sons of their father, the father of this world, the father of lies, the ultimate contrast. Because he's from above, they're from below, they have a different origin and they have a different destination. We know this in our own culture, right? We know that you represent or resemble wherever you're from. I mean, you are a product of your surroundings. That's what we can know within two minutes, someone who's from New York or someone who's from Florida. Someone who's from England or someone who's, who's from the Caribbean. Mannerisms, language, those things give themselves away. So does someone who's from above and someone who's from below. But the good news for the believer is that Jesus came from heaven and resembles heaven. He stands apart from everyone who resembles earth. And by our faith in him, we don't have to continue to represent and resemble earth. We don't have to continue to represent and resemble our sinful condition in this world. Through faith in Christ, we can resemble what comes from above. You can be born from below, but be born again from above. That's why that comes really early in John. You must be born again because we will all be born from below. But only those who trust in Christ will be born from above and no longer be condemned by our sin and no longer have to worry about death. That's why, the death, that's why death should not worry a believer. We shouldn't fear death. Because death with us, as Paul says, be absent from the body and present with the Lord. We get to go be with Christ. Our death will put to death sin forever because of our faith in Christ. And our life will be new life in him forever. Because he has conquered sin and death for us. Why these contrasts are so important. The words of Jesus are so important. And we have to be careful not to pick and choose the the teachings of Jesus that make us comfortable. Let me give you a little secret. No one will come to Christ if they're comfortable in their sin. Sin is supposed to make you uncomfortable. This is supposed to make us uneasy. This is supposed to make the people we talk to uneasy. Because it is death apart from Christ. Jesus says that again, in case you didn't hear him. Remember, if Jesus repeats himself three times, we should probably listen. So what does he say next? I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. 
Jesus picked up on the same thing we just talked about a moment ago. He told them they would die in their sins. And they said, what, is he going to kill himself? I told you, you will die in your sins. If you don't believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Don't you get that? But no, they didn't. He says it three times in this chapter. You will die in your sins. You will die in their sins. He also says something else three times. You will die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. In the Greek, the ego, me. I am. I'll touch on that in just a moment. But first, I want you to see this. Before he said, you will die in your sin. Did anyone pick up here that he says it plurally now? You will die in your sins. Before he was speaking of your sinful nature. Now he's speaking of your sinful choices. Your sinful actions. Not sin as in the condition, but sin as in your very character. You sin. And you will die in them without Christ. See, it's not only our nature that condemns us. Not just because we were born in Adam. But every sin is a death sentence. And if you do not believe that I am he... If you do not believe that I am, if you do not believe that I am Yahweh, the beginning and the end, the first, the last, and forever, you will die in your sins because every sin that you commit condemns you. And this is the force of the entire gospel of John. Believe in me or you will die. This is a matter of life and death. We proclaim eternal life because the the other option is eternal death apart from Christ. This is the clearest explanation of sin and guilt of man and the consequences of it that we've seen so far in John. We will see more, but you cannot avoid texts like this when you're talking about Jesus. So he says, I told you that you would die in your sins unless. These are words in your Bible that you should circle, unless. Because so many people will focus, so many believers will focus on their own sin, unless. You believe that I am he. Belief is the key to the Christian life. Faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. This is not empty, unsubstantiated belief like I believe I can fly or I believe in a flat earth or I believe that tofu tastes good. This is not empty. Yeah, uh, this is this is not empty, unsubstantiated belief. These are beliefs on solid truth. This is belief that Jesus is the I am. Yahweh himself, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am, it means being. It is all-encompassing. It is without limit. I am being itself. I am life itself. Without beginning, without end. Without measure. We get this first from Exodus chapter 3. Turn to Exodus chapter 3 for me. Very, Very beginning, second book in the Bible. Starting in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Exodus 3.13, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of our fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? One thing we notice, our God is a God who sends. He sent Moses. God the Father sent the Son. God sends because he is continually seeking after sinners because they don't seek after him. What is his name? What shall I say to them? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said this, and he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God chose a name for himself. No silly name could do. I am. 
He didn't, he didn't choose a name for himself. He chooses a concept, being, life itself, everything you know sent me to you. It's incredible. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, in case you didn't know what he's talking about, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus, I am to be remembered throughout all generations. The Israelites were never to forget. The Pharisees were never to forget that his name is I am. So when Jesus stands up before them and says, Ego me, I am. Unless you believe I am, you're going to die in your sins. Anytime anyone tells you Jesus is not God or Jesus never claimed to be God, they have never read John and they have never read that passage. They have no idea what they're talking about. The reason the Pharisees wanted to kill him is because he said, I am. And any false religion out there that tells you that he's not, tell them they're a liar and proclaim the name of Jesus as Yahweh, I am, because he did. If you don't believe in me, you will die in your sins. And of course, they get it by now, right? Because they're not, they can't be that thick. Verse 27. They didn't, um, excuse me, verse 25. Man, I got to move. They said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. Are you listening? I've been saying the same thing all along. I have much to say about you and much to judge. So Jesus is saying, you may not know who I am, but I know who you are. I know every thought in your mind. I know every sin that you've committed. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true. And I, and he sent me to declare to the world what I have heard from him. Jesus is saying, you know what? At this point, you're not understanding. You're not responding. I'm not going to waste my time on you. I have much to judge. I have much to say to you. But I'm just going to tell you that I'm from the Father. I'm on a mission from God. And I am here. And if you're not listening, my message is, is going to the world because you, Israel, have rejected me. Still no concern for their own sin. Who are you? They're, they're, they're not listening because Jesus told them from the very beginning. So they do not have ears to hear. He's standing in front of them, teaching what the Father sent them. So they have no eyes to see. Jesus' response is to compare himself to the Father. And this is a good example for us. Because many of us will feel inadequate to debate with people or uh, people try to force their false interpretations of, of, of Scripture on us. And I love Jesus' example here. It's a perfect example. Because they are, are trying to nitpick Jesus. They're not listening to the words he says. Anyone ever witness to someone and they're not listening to the words that you're saying? They keep on, on their little script and they don't know how to get off of it. What does Jesus do? I come from the Father. I have a message from the world. My father is true. He declares who he is. Let me just encourage you. People don't listen and they stick to their script. Declare who Jesus is. If the Holy Spirit is working, they will turn. If not, you won't waste any more of your time. When people doubt, just remember to declare that Jesus is Lord. Declare what has been revealed to him. And then revealed to us through the Holy Spirit, and declare his lordship. He's going to do it again in just a moment. Of course, 27, John loves to give us 
details of what's going on here. They did not understand what he had been speaking to them. Uh, he, they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. John's kind of side note here. No eyes to see, no ears to hear. So Jesus says to them, this is when everything changes. All right, you don't want to listen to who I am. Now let me tell you what's coming next. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. All right, what is Jesus talking about here? When you have lifted up, this is a term that refers to height. Jesus used this several times in John. But here, he says, when you have lifted up, there's, there's guilt here. They, there's responsibility here. They, and the irony here is that they will lift him up. They will put him on a cross. Sinners will lift him up so that he can, be, he can conquer sin and pay the consequences of sin. The divine irony that God uses sinners to pay for the sins of other sinners. You lift up the Son of Man. This title we've looked at before, the Son of Man, God's anointed, the Messiah, the divine ruler, the one who is to sit on the throne forever and ever. You have lifted up your king. You have lifted up your Messiah. This is the same word he uses in John chapter 3. What does he say here in John chapter 3? Looking at verse 14 quickly. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. When we looked at that, what happened back in Exodus? They rebel against God. And unless you look at this serpent that is put up on a stake, put up on a piece of wood, you will, you will not die. You look at the one who is put up on a tree. You will not die. The one who is, who, who is lifted up. This is the language used here. It refers to the cross. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, when I am, am lifted up, then you will know. But Jesus also used this term again. Same term. Look at chapter 12, verse 32. I love that your page is turning. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Jesus being lifted up refers to his death on the cross, but also his ascension to go back to the Father. This is, this is, this is doubly used here. When Jesus is lifted up, he will be lifted up for sins, but he'll also be lifted up in glory. But we know he's talking about sins here. We know he's talking about the cross because he says you. When you lift him up, they cannot lift him up in glory. They can't lift him up to the father, but they will lift him up on two pieces of wood. When you lift up the son of man, you will know. How will they know? The sky will go dark. The temple veil will be torn, torn and he will rise again. You will know. It's like, oh, yeah, we did that. So what was the, the, the message of the preaching of the early church? Turn to the next book. Look at Acts chapter 2. What did they teach? What got the, the, the Jews, many of them, by the thousands to turn to Christ? Chapter 2, verse 22. Same Jews here. Jesus says, you will know once I'm lifted up. So what does Peter say in this moment? Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. 
with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, you will know. This Jesus delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God is not off his throne when this happens. And it is part of God's plan. But who is responsible? You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This was the preaching of the apostles. This is what people got to, this is what turned people to repent and believe. You lifted up Christ. You killed him. You lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He can conquer death because death could not hold him. Even though men put him to death, what they meant for evil, God meant for good. The ultimate selfless act was the result of selfish, sinful beings that got him there in the first place. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. Then you will know that I am. The preaching of the apostles proved that. And even if they didn't hear the apostles preach, one day they will stand before Him and they will see Him as I am. And they will see Him for the last time. And He goes on to contrast His authority and their authority. I do nothing of my own authority. But I speak just as the Father taught me. He's contrasting their authority. You listen to your fathers, I listen to mine. This is going to set up that my dad is better than your dad argument in later on in, in chapter 8. Uh, we'll get there in a couple weeks. But this contrast of where my authority comes from, where my teaching comes from. You should know, but you don't. And I love this. Verse 29, we can plan to skim over, but I want to pull out a couple things from this that we can apply to our lives. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. Another amazing fact of the incarnation of Christ is even though he voluntarily set aside his divine attributes to walk in human flesh, the Father never left him. Never. And no matter how much the world hates, persecutes, and reacts to them, he is comforted and he's sustained by the Father who is always with him. And he will always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. Even when the world means things for evil. Jesus does not determine his connection to the Father by what they do to him. Even though they lift him up to death. A couple things we can learn from this. This is an encouragement to the believer. You know why union with Christ is so beautiful? Because the Father never left the Son. When we trust in Christ, we are united with Him with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That means the Father never leaves us, never forsakes us in Christ. We are always with Him no matter what the world does to us. I was thinking of a good analogy for this. And I thought of those little baby leashes that were popular for a while. You remember those things? I don't know whatever happened to those. It was just really weird. That they would strap this little harness onto a kid and they'd have this strap. And this kid thought he was good. He thought he could just go and just, until, he got, until he got yanked back. And I picture, like, that's, that's how we are in God's hands. We, we think we can run off and do our own things. But when we are in the hands of the Father, he will yank us back. 
to himself. Because if it was up to us, we would wander off at every poisoned lollipop that we find out there. But the Father will never leave us, never forsake us. No one can snatch us out of his hand. And even if it feels like we are far from him, he still has a line tied to us and will never let us go because of Jesus Christ. And because he is always with us, we should always want to do what is pleasing to him. Second thing I want you to get out of this passage, Jesus says that I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Always. Doing what is pleasing to God was not contingent on his circumstances. He was not waiting for people to pat him on the back and approve of him before he did what honored the Father. That was priority number one, two, three, four, and five. They hated him. They persecuted him. They rejected him and they killed him. For the name of the Father. But he always did what pleased him. What if we remembered that and took that to heart? No matter what the world does to us, no matter what the world says to us, we live to please one. Our God, I am. The beginning and the end. The ruler of all heaven and earth. And one more question. Is your desire to please God dependent on how well your life is going at the moment? Does everything have to be in order before you can come before God in prayer? Does everything have to be lined up before you can read his word? Does he have to give you what you want before you want to do what pleases him? I know a lot of Christians who put contingencies on their relationship with God. Well, I know I need to go back to church. I know I need to be a part of, part of worship. I know I need to be around believers. But I've got all these other important things. Jesus said he always does what pleases the Father. Do we feel that strongly? So the result of all this, this is the opposite of what you see on Christian television. This is the opposite of what you see on Christian greeting cards. This is the opposite of what most people would tell you a gospel message needs to be about. Jesus says, you're going to die. You're dead in your sins. What happens? Verse 30. As he was saying these, these things, many believed in him. What did the apostles preach? You crucified Christ. You lawless men. You workers of iniquity. Repent and believe. Okay. But what do we preach in our culture? God loves you no matter what you do. Everything's okay. If everything's okay and God loves you no matter what you do, then why would I want to change? Why would I want to go to Christ? Because I'm good where I am. Jesus should want to be with me. That's what, that's what our culture teaches. This is a lesson in, in evangelism. We see this continued pat, pattern in Scripture. When did the Israelites turn to God? When he reminded them of their sin and told them, I'm going to wipe you off the face of the map. When did people believe in Jesus? When he told them they're going to die in their sins. When did they believe the apostles? When they told them, repent and believe. We believe a lie within ourselves that we have to present a nice picture of God. We have to paint a rosy face on Jesus and, and create this this moral superhero, because we don't believe that the gospel is good enough. We don't believe that the Holy Spirit has enough power to convict people in their sins. 
can guarantee you he does. So next week, we're going to look at kind of a little litmus test for those who say they believe. We're going to get into that for the next few weeks because many may have said they believe, but do they really believe? And this will be a great lesson for believers. Someone who says, I believe in Christ, what do we tell them? Next week. So how do we conclude quickly? We're sinners by nature and by choice. And without Christ, we will die in our sins. And we must believe that he is the I am. This is why the gospel is so important. I said this earlier. It is not a chance at a better life. It is our only chance at life. You can believe that he is the I am. You can believe that he is who he says he is. You can proclaim his name boldly. You can stand on it. Because he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And this is what we're going to do in our closing hymn. I'll hail the power of Jesus' name. Because in it, it is the power of God for salvation. Through faith in Christ Jesus. That's what John wants you to know. That's what I want you to know. That's what we walk away from. Believers, be emboldened, be encouraged. In Christ Jesus, I have life and I'm no longer responsible for my sins. Amen? Amen. And if you don't know Christ, you still bear the weight of your sins. And there's death and hell that awaits those who do not believe that he is the I am. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for good news of Christ Jesus. Come to earth, died, buried, rose again, ascended on high. Because the bad news is so bad. Lord, we are sinful by our own nature and our own choices. We would never choose you. We would never seek you. Because our hearts are deceitfully wicked and we cannot trust them. But thank you that you sought us. You sent your son for us with a message to the world that if you believe in me, there is life and life everlasting and forgiveness of sins. This is the good news that we stand on. This is why we gather. This is why we worship. This is why we pray. This is why we study. This is why we encourage one another because these words are true and we can proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.